electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Money starts right now, live from the Nasdaq market site overlooking New York City's Times Square. I'm Melissa Lear. Traders on the desk are Dan Nathan, David Seberg, Mike Coe, and Guy Adami. Tonight on Fast, short seller Andrew Luck blasting Kronos today, calling it, quote, the dark side of the cannabis space and sending shares plunging 30%. So what exactly does he not like about the company? He'll be here to explain. Plus, Apple soaring to a new high today as the company releases invites for its annual September iPhone event. Tech guru Gene Munster will be here with a look at what to expect. But first, we start with the markets. A major indices snapping a four-day winning streak. The Dow closing lower by nearly 140 points as trade jitters crop back into the markets. Let's get to Eamon Javers in D.C. with the latest. Eamon. Yeah, hi, Melissa. We're getting some new headlines crossing from that Bloomberg interview with President Trump that just wrapped up here within the past hour or so at the White House. Uh, Bloomberg uh, reporting that the president said a number of interesting things, including uh, that he's thinking of withdrawing from the World Trade Organization if that organization doesn't, quote, shape up. The president also saying he'd like to index uh, capital gains taxes to inflation. That's an idea that would require congressional approval. Uh, the president saying he doesn't regret appointing uh, Jerome Powell to the Fed, uh, even though he has been critical of Jerome Powell's moves at the Fed to raise interest rates over the coming year. Uh, the president still saying uh, he doesn't regret that appointment. The president also saying that uh, Attorney General Jeff Sessions is safe in his job until at least the November elections, which isn't all that much running room uh, for an attorney general to have uh, from the president of the United States. So watch this space. Uh, also, the president saying that uh, he's not going as far as to say uh, that he wants Google and Facebook and some of these other social media giants to be broken up. But he is saying that many people believe there might be antitrust problems there. So the president throwing that idea out there as well. Meanwhile, elsewhere in Washington, some high anticipation in terms of that U.S.-Canada trade negotiation involving NAFTA. Uh, take a look at the U.S. Trade Representative's office at this hour. Uh, reporters camped outside waiting for any developments here. We're just a few hours away from tomorrow's deadline to finish up negotiating to see if we can get to a NAFTA 2.0 here between Mexico, Canada, and the United States. Christia Freeland, uh, the Canadian negotiator, the top official here uh, on behalf of Canada, Canada has been updating reporters. Here's what she said just a short time ago. Together with uh, the Prime Minister and Ambassador McNaughton and Minister Dominic LeBlanc, our Minister for Intergovernmental Relations, uh, we had a very good call with the Premiers of Canada's provinces and territories to give them an update and to hear their views on the negotiations. So that gives you a sense of the process there. If they're calling all the different provinces and territories, it would you would speculate that they might have something to brief them on in terms of specifics. No specifics have leaked out of this, Melissa, though, at this point. So we're just sort of uh, waiting for word from inside that building over on 17th Street whether or not they've got a deal or no deal. Tomorrow's the deadline. Yeah, and Eamon, a little bit more clarity on the deadline uh, of tomorrow. How was that Impose. Does Congress need a certain amount of days to approve any sort of a deal before the next administration of the uh, Mex new Mexican president takes a hold? I mean, right. how do we come to Friday? 
Yeah, it's sort of a soft deadline, right? Uh -huh. And the president just said in that interview with Bloomberg that uh, either they're going to get a deal with Canada by tomorrow or they're going to get a, a deal uh, in, a, in a period of time, he said, not specifying exactly when. So the reason that everyone is focused on Friday is because they want to have this signed, sealed, and delivered, passed by the United States Congress, vote up and down, and then have the opportunity to sign it before the new Mexican administration comes into power uh, on December 1st. So you back out the time uh, from December 1st until now, and you get Friday as what people expect is the last possible day where they can do this and still have the current president of Mexico sign this deal, not wait for the incoming Mexican administration. That could change uh, the whole complexion of the deal. Uh, so negotiators want to get this done as soon as they possibly can because of that. And just quickly on the, on the comments about Google, Facebook, as well as Amazon, do you, uh, do you know the context of the question? Do you know what the question was? Was he asked whether or not they should be broken up? I mean, yeah, we we don't have a, I don't have a full transcript okay. of that yet. They're releasing some headlines as we go along here. The, the other thing is that, you know, the president's been very critical of Google over the past 24 hours. You remember yesterday he released that video bashing Google, saying that Google didn't uh, promote his State of the Union address, even, even when it promoted Barack Obama's State of the Union addresses in previous years. Google came out with a statement saying that's just not true. We did, in fact, promote it. We've been having sort of a back and forth here, war of words between the president and Google over the past right. 24 hours. So dramatic stuff in terms of the tech space here in the White House. All right. Eamon, thanks. Eamon Javers at the White House. Yeah. Um, you know, in the past, buying these so-called trade war dips, they've been pretty good entry points in this market. So do you buy the dip that we saw today? Guy. Well, it wasn't much of a dip, but the answer to your question is yes. About nine hours ago, the president tweeted out, the financial market's better than anticipated. If you've made a fortune in your 401ks, now you should be happy. But the end of that tweet was, more good news is coming. I mention that because I think this China headline is the president putting it out there because he knows a deal with Canada is going to get done. And I think that will give the market some levity tomorrow, I think, or just help the markets rise before a long weekend. And I think in his mind, it puts pressure on the Chinese. So to answer your original question, yeah, I think you do buy this dip, if you want to call it that. And I do think there's going to be a trade agreement with Canada over the next 24 hours. But the tariffs on China, the tariffs on China goods still to come. And it's surprising because I thought the markets, it seemed like the markets, sort of assumed that they would be coming. I mean, the deadline for public comment is next week. The assumption was that there would be no further talks and that the next round of tariffs would go into effect. Yeah, well, listen, I mean, since the market, you know, made its bottom in February, March, you know, the dips have come from uh, commentary regarding trade. And I think, obviously, as far as North America is concerned, we've made some incremental progress. I think the real issue with China is this. So you, let's say you have NAFTA 2.0. And, and if you think about how much we trade with China, you know, Mexico and Canada are 2x that, okay? So, so China is important from the standpoint that they're the ones growing at 6.9% a year, hopefully, their country. And we need, the global economy needs China to keep chugging along. So when we see about risk asset prices in China, we see what's going on over there. That is kind of the worry that I would say. And then when you think back to you know, what's going on here with some of our stock market, you know, we know that the S&P is 1% from all-time highs, but look at autos, right? Look right. at U.S. steel, look at home builders. I mean, these are sectors that are basically down 20% from their 2018 highs. So there's some stuff, weakness lurking under the, under the hood. If we do get some good news out of the negotiations with Mexico and Canada, I think the market is likely to extrapolate and assume that the bluster that we're getting in the short term with respect to China is likely going to be resolved at one point or another. And I think the evidence of that is in the market action that we saw right, today. We were right. down less than a half of a percent. We're sitting very close to the S&P's all-time highs. The one thing I would say is that the area where we did see some weakness 
industrials and emerging markets would be the two areas that would get the greatest exposure right. Right. if you had a problem. And of course, you know, the market action makes complete sense. So we're buying those names. No, I mean, look, well, no? I, not right now. I think you got to wait a little bit. I think there's a little time to tell here. I look, I agree with everything that everybody said on the desk here. I look at today and said it was a total blip on the radar screen from the standpoint of reaction when that headline hit, taking the market down barely a little bit. And look at semis, however. Semis did roll. SMHs, they rolled quite a bit. It took a lot out of the SMHs. But, so I avoid that group, at least for the near term. But I do believe, I think that we're going to get to some sort of resolution at some point in time. I think the headlines about China, anything that's said about China right now, the market is sort of digesting in a much more sort of like push it off way than they have in the past. And, and I think that that's, that's just going to be the way it is until something's actually resolved. Yeah, I just guess the worry is that we've seen expectations go up dramatically. We've seen our GDP print after Q2. We see what's happened with Q3. It's kind of supposed to be the second consecutive four-plus print. We see the City Surprise Index making one-year lows. So what does that mean? That means the expectations are high, and it's getting harder to beat those high expectations. So we have the stock market near all-time highs. You do have some weakness, like you said, some, some, some of these industrials under the hood. What is it saying? So if China were to slow down, if they were to take this thing towards the end of the year, then you could see considerable economic weakness you know, here, because, like, again, we're not seeing wage growth, inflation adjusted. Right. We're seeing potentially consumer costs going up with further tariffs with China. And it doesn't seem like President Trump wants to blink here. So you think that the impacts of, of new tariffs, which are going to come into effect yes. apparently next week, um, that that will impact the markets, the Chinese markets, U.S. markets, the economies right away? Right, that because, we will see it in, in the next listen, sort of print. Now, now, let's be very clear. So that tax cut that we got in December, it didn't help consumers, okay? So if wages aren't going up on an inflation-adjusted basis and then consumer prices are going to be going up here, okay. then we got a little bit of a problem. I, but I think the biggest concern is, I think you look at China and you say to yourself, they're kind of, they're, I mean, they're kind of in a, a dock, a really bad position right now. So I say the president understands that one of the biggest fundamental stances there right now is capital outflows. They want to mitigate capital outflows out of China and also their currency, making sure their currency stays relatively stable so devaluing it is not in the cards I look at it and say he knows that he could push really hard against them right now to what extent he can push meaning does it you, I take their economy down or slow it down to the point where it's the Chinese market that's reflects the this also by the way let's let's bear in mind that the US market we're essentially trading at all-time highs the Chinese market is not okay right. neither is a Chinese currency although that's a separate issue the fact that equities in China have pulled back as much as they have right. is evidence of who essentially is essentially on the losing side of this battle Correct. as far as investors are concerned at this moment and right now it is the Chinese that are the losers as far as investors are concerned. Any deal, though, that comes to fruition by the end of the year, I would imagine, would have a lift to the Chinese stock market as well as the U.S. stock market. Which market would go up more? Chinese, I believe. So the is Chinese that the better market. trade? Well, but, I mean, If we are to believe that all this bluster, like we saw with Canada and Mexico, which ultimately sounds like it's going to lead to an agreement by tomorrow or sometime thereafter, is the same as what we're seeing with China then we are to believe maybe that there will be a trade deal on China as well. And so, therefore, what happened to the market? Except I'm not going to... Con I'm going to contradict myself okay. a little bit. Now, David's correct. It would appear as though the Chinese are loose. From the outside looking in, that's probably 100% true. Mm -hmm. From the inside looking out, you know, they don't play the six-month game. They're playing a hundred-year game. The President Xi doesn't have to run for re-election. He has the job as long as he wants, basically until he passes away. President Trump has to run for re-election. Who is better suited to play the long game? 100% the Chinese. So although we might say, what, look at what's happening, the market's down 23%, we're winning. I don't think that's necessarily true. I don't think there's any deal with China before the end of the year. There's okay. no way they're going to do something before the midterm elections, in my opinion. My point earlier was, 
I think the president thinks that getting a deal done with Canada will help his uh, leverage getting something done with China. I don't think that's correct. If there was a deal, though, for sure, that would be a bigger tailwind for the Chinese market than it would be for the U.S. market, because you have two things working in its favor. For one, it's going to be, on a relative basis, weakening the dollar, mm -hmm. strengthening the yuan. And also, we can see what happened to Chinese equities as a result of all of this. Those two things right. could present, I mean, could you see a 25 percent pop? On, in dollar terms in the Chinese market if we reach the deal before the end of the year. And I think the answer to that is absolutely yeah. well, 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 hold on one second. What, what, what about last, the, th last, the whole notion yeah. in Q2 we saw a lot of uh, demand pulled forward, right? We saw a lot of double order. We saw it in the chips. We saw it in soybean. We saw it in a lot of different places. Sure. So, you know, some of that 4% GDP print that we saw might have been pulled forward from the second half. So I guess my point is, is that I don't suspect that you're going to get a huge pop from U.S. equities at all-time highs here. And obviously, if EM, there is, is, a deal? is the, yes, okay. if EM is the thing that's likely to move a little bit. All right, coming up. Congratulations, you are invited to Apple's annual iPhone event in September. So what can we expect from the grand old affair? Mr. Apple himself, Gene Munster, just published a note on the subject. He'll be here to explain. Plus, two retailers, two very different moves after hours. Lulu soars, Ulta sinks. We'll bring you the latest from the quarter's instant reaction from Wall Street. And later, just say no. That's what short seller Andrew left. The man who took down Valiant says um, also gets smoked by NVIDIA. He did, that is. He is now saying about one pot stock he's calling the dark side of the cannabis craze. He'll be here to make his case. We're live at the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. Much more Fast Money right after this. What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones... Our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Welcome back to Fast Money Apple's next big product event set to take place on September 12th. Josh Lipton's in San Francisco. He'll tell us what we can expect. Hey, Josh. Mel, the event will take place at Apple's new campus in Cupertino, specifically at the new Steve Jobs Theater. As you see here, the invite simply reads, gather round. So what should we expect at this event? Well, as always, we know Apple is going to be tight-lipped, but reports both from the media and the street indicate that three new iPhones could be on the way. A new high-end model with a 6.5-inch display. Just to put that in context, the iPhone 10 has a 5.8-inch display. So what's the advantage of such a big screen? I checked in with longtime Apple watcher Ben Beharin of Creative Strategies. He says it could lead to much richer gaming and entertainment experiences. In other words, potentially more engagement with Apple services. At most, Beharin guesses that Apple could charge $1,200 for such a device. Also expected an upgrade to the iPhone 10, which has sold strongly, giving a lift to the company's revenue and stock price, and what some are calling a more budget-friendly iPhone with a 6.1-inch screen. It might not just be iPhones, though. Other hardware news could come in on September 12th as well. Beharin says he also expects a new watch, an iPad refresh, and updated AirPods. Melissa, back to you. Now, Josh, you saw the invitation. It says gather round. Mm. Do you feel like that is a hint as to what sorts of products they might launch, or am I reading way too much into it? I, I don't know. I don't think you're reading too much into it, Mel. As soon as we always get these invitations, there it is, the invite. I mean, the analysis quickly begins of what exactly uh, perhaps Tim Cook 
and Phil Schiller and Eddie Q and the rest of the gang have up their sleeve. We're going to have to find out, though, on September 12th. May, may, may I ask Josh Round a quick one. question? Okay, fine. Is that a new jacket? Because you look stunning. I mean, right? You got, like, the, look at him, man. Oh, man. I, saw, I just want you to know, I mean, if I'm Magnum, Guy Adami, you are always going to be my TC, buddy. See, that's I what just, I'm talking about. I need wow. you to know that. Right on. But what love here. All right, Josh, thank you. Josh Lifton in San Francisco. For more on what we can expect from Apple, let's bring in Loop Ventures founder Gene Munster. So, Gene, what are you expecting? Does the round mean anything to you? It does, and we'll quickly talk about that. I think it misses the bigger point, but the round may be a slightly different crown on the Apple Watch, a slightly bigger screen, same general form factor, but the screen will go all edge to edge on that. Mm. But they'll probably redesign that. There may be something around AirPods with round, and, uh, but it's probably nothing uh, really uh, groundbreaking. And I want to emphasize that, uh, just kind of jump into what's being missed in all of this. And as we talk about all these different products and three phones, and I think Josh did a good job of hitting on it, this bigger phone, we talk about a 6.5 inch versus 5.8, that I think gets missed on why this can be a huge product. And I think that this is going to lay the groundwork for upside to iPhone numbers for the next 12 months. And the reason why is that displays do matter. This display is going to be 32% uh, bigger display size versus the biggest iPhone today, 32. Now, the last time we had this kind of a a large display increase was in 2015, fiscal 15, when the iPhone 6 came out, and that was 34% bigger than the iPhone 5S, so 32 versus 34. What happened to iPhone demand in fiscal 15 was shocked everyone. It went from 13% growth for the iPhone 5S and it jumped to 37%. People love big phones. Now the headwind and the immediate pushback is gonna be this is really expensive phones, $1,200. Mm-hmm. And that's true, but keep in mind the street's looking for flat growth. I think you're gonna see a 5%-ish type of growth and any upside to growth is gonna be inspiring for the Apple bulls. Okay, so the ASPs go up. What do margins do in response? Do they stay the same? Did they go up? Did uh, they go typically down? Typically, they stay the same. Okay. They, they typically do. You see a little bit of compression, then they start to rebound. All right. Um, in terms, do we get to a point, Gene, ever when a larger display doesn't necessarily mean more people want it? It, it sounded like yes, your argument eventually. for this being a game changer, for this being a, a, a reason to upgrade, is that it's simply because it's bigger. Yes, I think that I think people are using their phones for more things. And it's kind of ironic because if you looked at the iPod world, we kind of went smaller and smaller and smaller. And in the phone world, because we're doing more and more things that typically weren't done on smartphones now, it's almost uh, mini computers. So I think that there is room. Now, at some point, you're going to hit a pump up close to an iPad mini, and that's too big. But I think that there's definitely room for, especially thinking the emerging markets. What we saw at the iPhone 6 is that was particularly appealing with people who had a single device. And so I think that I'm not suggesting we're going to jump to 15 or 20 percent growth because of this. But what I am suggesting is the street's missing the point, that this is going to be a big deal when they see, uh, when consumers start to get their hands on this larger form factor. All right, Gene, we're going to leave it there. Thanks so much for joining us. Gene Meister of Loop Ventures. Is this going to do the trick, Dan? Well, you asked a good question. You said that as ASPs are going to stay higher because they're going to have these higher price points. Um, but here's the thing. iPhone units have not grown in years. Okay, So in the last quarter, in the June quarter, iPhone units grew 1%. Although sales 
total revenues right. were up 20% year over year. So they're getting more. But here's the one thing that I think when Gene says that investors aren't getting, we're also seeing massively elongated um, upgrade cycles. Because if the only thing Meaning that you can do... Meaning people wait longer to upgrade. They're waiting longer to upgrade. Um, you know, but that, that, that being said, I think the higher ASPs at this stage, 10 years into the cycle, are showing you that they pulled a great, great trick with their iPhone upgrade plan by getting people to basically do a prime service where you're just paying 37 or 40 40 dollars a month that sort of thing people are not so focused on that 1000 or 1200 price tag anymore yeah i mean i the larger form factor i mean i i find that a little bit interesting when you consider that one of the reasons i think people moved to the iphone 10 off of the seven and eight pluses was because that's a really big device to carry around i mean i'm speaking from my point of view too big to put in my pocket I don't have an interest in a larger phone. I'm perfectly comfortable with the size of the iPhone 10. The other reason I think that we're seeing those longer, basically, periods of time before people upgrade is because of the higher ASPs. If you're spending a thousand bucks or twelve, there is a limit to affordability. At which point, exactly right. And you know, it, you you're going to see kids, for example, that also want to get. They're the ones that usually are prompting their parents for the immediate upgrade. I think parents usually can sit and wait a little bit longer. I'm curious to see what happens on the watch side, though, because I think that is an area where. We haven't really found that those smartwatches are so appealing that we have to have one. But the features Maybe. need to improve. Exactly. It doesn't just be, have to become and, a round edge-to-edge right. -edge display. I that's mean. right. It's not, it's not <laughs> an issue of what the thing looks like. It's how it works. And if they can improve that, actually, I could see more people, myself included, yeah. potentially and, moving in that and direction. And what it does. I mean, if yeah. you can track oh. your health better then that might be a reason to get 100 percent and i think also with the phone with i mean the introduction of a larger screen phone whatever but the asp going up they're entering markets with lower income sort of people where they they, they have to ha absolutely have to have margin pressure in my opinion with competition coming in i just can't imagine that the lower income nature of some of these emerging markets that they're entering into is going to be markets that are going to explode for them real quick the only thing you need to know in my opinion after everything that said warren buffett the greatest value investor of all time with becky today said he bought more apple so if he yeah. thinks it's cheap we might argue filing. with him yeah. right all right well apple was a hot topic on cnbc's big interview as guy had mentioned with warren buffett earlier today for more on what the oracle of omaha had to say go to cnbc.com i'm melissa lee you're watching fast money on cnbc first in business worldwide in the meantime here's what else is coming up on fast who wants to be a millionaire Pretty much everyone in America. But a top voice at Fidelity says, unless Americans make a big change to their 401ks, they might have to phone a friend for retirement. She'll explain. Plus... If someone offers you drugs, instead of saying something you really don't mean, just say no. And a noted short seller says, you should just say no to surging pot stocks Kronos. He will make the case when Fast Money returns. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. 
Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to Fast Money. The pot stock's getting smoked today as a short seller targets one pot stock, calling it the dark side of the cannabis space. Let's get to Bob Bassani at the New York Stock Exchange for the details. Hey, Bob. Pink Floyd, I'm getting flashbacks. <laughs> Marijuana stocks have been melting up this year, but pot names came under pressure today after noted short seller Citron Research made a bearish call on Kronos Group. Now, this morning, Citron's Andrew Left set a price target of $3.50, projecting a drop of roughly 70% from where Kronos traded prior to the call. Now, Citron argues that Kronos quote, appears to have been deceiving the investing public by purposely not disclosing the size of its distribution agreements with provinces, unlike every other major cannabis player, close quote. Citron goes on to say that sources tell them that in reality, the agreements are too small to justify the premium investors are paying for the stock, and they could be looking at a securities fraud case. Hmm. The stock fell another 10% midday. FactSet noted that Copperfield Research also made negative comments in the form of a string of tweets shortly after 1 p.m. Eastern time. Shares of Kronos plummeted 30%. Its worst day in four years. Trading in the stock was briefly halted midday. Other pot players like Canopy Growth, Aurora, and Tilray, they're all down 3 to 4% on those calls though still up double digits for the month. Now, these warnings come, of course, as cannabis growers are waiting for Canada to legalize the recreational use of marijuana this fall, and money pours into the pot space from beverage makers looking for potential partnerships in the pot space. Keep playing that Pink Floyd. Melissa, <laughs> back to you. All right, Bob. Thanks. Bob Bassani at the New York Stock Exchange. Well, infamous short seller Andrew Left of Citron Research joins us now to explain why he thinks Kronos is the dark side of the cannabis space. Andrew, great to have you with us. So the stock is down 30%. I have to ask you this right off the bat. Are you still short uh, Kronos right now, or did you cover? Oh, I'm definitely still short the stock, no okay. doubt. Okay. So how does this play out? Because what you're alleging is pretty serious. I mean, you're basically saying that there could be securities fraud here. So... Uh, yeah, well, first of all, Melissa. Okay. Andrew. All, why, do I have to be, why do I have to be infamous? Can't I just be famous one day? Or just Andrew left, but that's okay. Well known. Moving Whatever you want, yeah. Okay, there you go. That's okay. <laughs> Moving beyond that, even if there's nothing wrong with the company, even if everything is fine with the company, then the stock's $3.50. If I want to give them the same multiple as all their peers who I don't think have the same issues that they have, the stock's $3.50. So that's being generous to them. And that we're talking U.S. here, okay? So why would I not be short the stock? It's a very competitive industry. I think they're a subpar player. I think they have a lot of issues with disclosure, with production, with the, the commercialization of their product. I think they've overpromised, and I think they're trading way out of whack with the rest of the industry. $3.50 with no problems. If I believe everything they say, it's $3.50. Okay. So let's start with what you think the company is being deceptive about. One issue was that they did not um, tell investors in which provinces they had distribution agreements. Why is that so key? Isn't it more important the size of no, that it, agreement it, or how much they're distributing exactly. to the overall market and not necessarily whether or not they're doing it in Quebec or some other province? No, exactly. And, and that's what it was. They disclose they have it in the provinces, but they are not disclosing the size of the agreements. Oh, and if you okay. look at their competitors, they are disclosing the size. So you want to know the size as opposed to we're doing business in Quebec 
fill in the blanks exactly. on the on how big. Exactly. Every everyone else gives more disclosure. You should give the same amount of disclosure. What 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 does the company say to you when you say, you know, I, I think you should disclose the size of the of the amount of business I that mean, you're doing in this announcement? All, let's put something. Are they in saying we're not going to give second. it to you? Hold on. I didn't call the company and ask them. They put out in press releases. When you put out a press release. I'm getting, let's put it this way. The stock is up 50% this month. I think like 400% this year. So it's not like anything's crazy. It should have never been where it was yesterday. And it should never be where it is right now. The stock will trade down to $3.50. There's no reason for it to be up 50% in the past month. Okay. Um, in terms of what else the company should or should not uh, be doing, Andrew, um, you're saying in one of your... Uh, assertions uh, that the hit that the company has a product uh, product recall history that has had several product recalls. Um, now, an analyst who covers the company in Canada says that some of the product recalls can't be actually pinned to the current management team. They acquired another company, and, and that company had a product re uh, recall before Kronos acquired it. Another product recall, for instance, was voluntary. Why should that be a Last, huge issue? Okay, how does this sound? You ready? The company was making a big deal that they're starting to sell in Germany. Germany, I mean, the words that were used were so grandiose in the press release, it was amazing. And it turned out to be, it was minuscule. It was a few hundred thousand dollars. And they discussed it on Q1 and never discussed it Q2. So my curiosity is, where did this thing go in Germany Q2? Sure enough, you start reading Leafly and you see they recalled for pesticides the uh, cannabis bought. Okay, now, what makes it interesting to me is Two days after the recall, I don't know if exactly two days, slightly after the recall, without disclosing an AK, and here's a company that loves to make assertions, they raised $100 million from the street. They could have easily said, we had a recall, we can fix this, not that big of a deal long term, but no. So I think sometimes securities fraud can be the lack of disclosure as much as, you know, uh, disclosing. And it was, they should have disclosed that before they raised their $100 million. So, Andrew, it's David Sieber. Quick, that wasn't a material event for the company. It was one kilogram of product equal to roughly $1,000. I mean, it's not material at all to their earnings. As a matter of fact, you talk about Germany. I mean, Germany, they were breaking out line-iting Germany in Q1. They didn't line-it in, in Q2 because the provinces were getting actually frustrated with the fact that these companies were selling product internationally where the margins are better when there's a shortage in Canada. So they decided not to break it out. So well, you can't make the assessment that there's fraud that's under the that, irony. that the, strategy. The, the, the irony of that is that nothing is material to their financials yeah, but the because problem their is financials you say fraud. are so small. You use the word fraud, and every tape reading algo hears that, reads I, I it, said, and they act what, on it. What I said, you use the word what fraud, I said it scares the heck this, out of investors that haven't invested in the stock well, and prevents them from buying know, actually, it. Actually, what, what I said is I in the this, name. Okay, what I did is, in this, I asked the question, could it be? And you know what? Many people would say you should disclose that, whether it be, if you have a pesticide in Europe, you know, I don't want to say... It's like a Chipotle. Hey, one burrito got better. Two burritos got better if no one disclosed it. If there was a recall of your product, okay, from what could be a potentially right. big customer, that should be disclosed a regardless recall. of the size. A voluntary recall in a scenario like this doesn't matter. It's, it's not relevant and it's not material. And therefore, this guy's a lawyer. The CEO of this company is a corporate lawyer. I mean, he understands the game. He understands this, this process. I mean, he's not going to screw things up. 
So I say to you, the word fraud scares I mean, the heck well, out of I investors. Mean, well, I, well, I, well, listen, what should scare investors and this company is that's one point. If that was the whole story, David, then you would, we, we could go back and right. forth, okay? But that, that's, that is one part of a larger mosaic of a story. The stock is $3.50 at best, like I said, with no problems, no recalls. We're selling to Germany. It's great. Our plans in Israel, Australia, wherever we say, everything's going to work as planned. The stock's $3.50. That's the important thing. Andrew, it's Guy. So maybe if you didn't come on wearing Johnny Cash dress in black, maybe we would say you weren't a villain. That's and number one. And by the way, hold on. And the big shout out, and not me, a big shout out to Tim Seymour, who yesterday, before I even put it out, Tim Seymour put it in his bucket of kicking this one out. So I have to give Tim So that, that was going to be my follow-on. This is an indictment of Kronos specifically. I mean, do you believe in the cannabis space, though, or do you think the entire space is sort of my word, not yours, for gazy? That's a good question. The space is real. The hype is not. Margins will get compressed. The cost per gram will go down significantly. Look what happened in Washington state. Uh, things will get overstated. The one thing I will not underestimate is uh, I would not short and I would not buy uh, Canopy. I think the Constellation deals, you know, it's very blue sky. What happens with the cannabis drinks? I do believe in that. But at the same time, there will be significant margin compression, and these farmers, people who have the farms, uh, you know, I think many of them will go out of business. If you cannot keep your cost per gram down, which is the biggest problem that Kronos is having right now, because they're reliant on these indoor facilities and they're moving towards greenhouse facilities, if you can't keep that cost per gram down, then you're going to go out of business. All right. Um, and last question, Andrew. You, you're short. You say you remain short. When did you put that short on, and will you take that short down? to 350. Oh, I don't, come on, Melissa, you always ask that question and it's irrelevant when I put it on or when I'm gonna take it off. What's relevant is the okay, information here's what's relevant. The here's what's relevant to people watching. Are you just as short the stock right now as you were at the beginning of the day? Uh, I took a small size of the position off today. Yes, okay. but I, I'm, still, I'm still extremely short this stock. I believe the stock trades down to, to where it was just three weeks ago, $6. Okay. And then right down to 350. Yeah. Andrew, great to speak with you. Thank you. Well known short seller, Andrew Left of Citron Research. Uh, we should note that we did reach out to Kronos and invited the CEO on the show to respond to Andrew. Instead, a company representative provided us uh, with this statement We do not comment on short seller reports, so there is not a statement we can have you read on air. We can, however, assure the public that our securities offerings have been underwritten by reputable banks and our respected advisors have done all the necessary due diligence under both U.S. and Canadian securities law. Let's trade it. David. Are you for, do you invest in Kronos? Or no, you, so okay. my, my view is I, I agree with Because you sound like you're defending I'm it. Defend, I'm defending it on one side. I defend the aspect of fraud. When you use the word fraud, that's a big boy word, and you better be prepared to defend it. So I'm not saying the stock is a buy here. I'm not saying that it's not potentially overvalued just based on, you know, from the standpoint where it's trading versus the peers. There's no question it was overvalued, and Tim made a great call yesterday. However, using the word fraud is a very scary thing. What's going to happen over the next several days is you're going to see uh, headlines hit the tape about class action lawsuits. If you've owned the stock during this period of time, given the fact there's been a fraudulent accusation against the company, blah, blah, blah. And you're going to see that occur over the next several weeks, months, whatever. So I look at it and say that's going to keep pressure on the stock, undue pressure. I don't think there's fraud here. 
Is it overvalued? Is it overvalued? Look, it may be, it's probably a stretch overvalued. All right. Do I think it's a 350 stock? I don't. Okay, still ahead. Two big retail movers after hours, Lulu and Ulta. We'll tell you what is driving those stocks and get instant reaction from Wall Street when Fast Money comes right back. whip and tonight we have two big retail movers lululemon soaring while ulta sinks after reporting earnings courtney reagan fans it is your lucky night she's all over both lulu and ulta hey court hi there melissa okay so analysts are sending in their quick takes i want to start with lululemon's blowout quarter instanet simian siegel says to state the obvious lulu continues to post stellar comps and increasingly impressive margins this is retail at its prime. Susan Anderson at B. Riley FBR tells me the consumer is clearly spending and resonating with Lulu's product, clearly taking share from traditional athletic players like Under Armour. Susquehanna Sam Poser says Lululemon's margin are the most impressive piece here, and the flow of new product just keeps getting better. Now let's talk about Alta. Oppenheimer's Rupesh Prika says that Alta's stock is down because it didn't increase guidance, and he says waning momentum for some large cosmetics brands really drove Alta's comp shortfall. Edgewater Research's Daryl Boringer is concerned that Alta's transaction growth continues to moderate at 3.1%. He says that's the lowest number that he can remember. He also says the consumer is getting conditioned to more promotion, and he's seeing bigger sales lulls in periods of off-promotion at Alta. Lack of innovation in cosmetics also an issue, but innovation of sorts at least is coming to Alta. Kylie Jenner just tweeting. She's so excited to let you guys know Kylie Co Cosmetics will be coming to all Ulta beauty stores around the country this holiday. More to come. Currently, it's only sold online, and we know how much money she's made on that so far. Back over to you, Melissa. Yep, I know that put a smile on Guy Adami's face. <laughs> Courtney, thank you. Yep. Courtney Reagan at headquarters. Mike, you too. I'm guessing you're going to want to trade Lulu here. I am going to. Well, obviously, we talked about yeah. it last week. We like the stock going into it. This is a situation where, obviously, they make the best-of-breed product. That remains popular. And outside of the athletic apparel, they also have casual apparel, also which people are going into. Makes them more of a brand as well. I think it's a good story, and I would stick with it. Yeah. Margins. I mean, that, Courtney mentioned margins were 18.5% operating margins. I think the street was looking for 14, which is pretty ridiculous given the trajectory of the stock and given the amount of growth they continue to see. Quickly, you look at inventories up 24% year over year, say, uh-oh, margins are going to get whacked next quarter. No, because they have 24% sales growth, so margins are going to hang in there. you got to be comfortable with valuation at these levels. I don't know, though. This is nosebleed level to me. All right. Speaking of retail, Amazon hitting another record high today, crossing uh, 2000 for the first time ever. The stock has surged more than 71% this year alone. Now, just a stone's throw away from being only the second company ever to hit a trillion-dollar market cap. Options traders betting it could reach that milestone as soon as next week. Dan's at the Plasma. What are you looking at, Dan? Yeah, so, hey, Mel, we're doing this two days in a row. We got that close above uh, 2,000. I think now traders are looking for a move to $1 trillion under uh, market cap here. So today, call volume was really hot. Um, again, two times that of average daily volume. And I just want to kind of focus on the next week, the September 7th uh, weekly 2,050 calls. That would be $1 trillion in market cap. We saw some buying there, about 9 bucks. It's really important to remember, $9 seems like a lot, but not on a $2,000 stock. Um, that's less than a half a percent of the stock price. The options market is only implying about a 25% chance that those calls will be in the money on next Friday's expiration. And the probabilities are going to decline 
as we go day by day. We have a long weekend here. So looking way out of the money on something like this is not particularly a great way to do on a short-term basis, but it seems like the traders have the momentum on the way up there. It's likely to tick there sooner than later. I'm not sure buying those out-of-the-money calls a week ahead is the way to play it, though. All right. Thanks for that, Dan. For more options action, check out the full show. That's tomorrow, 5.30 p.m. Eastern time. The guys have had a number of hot calls of late, as evidenced by Mike's trade on Lulu, so you want to tune in. Coming up, how would you like to retire a millionaire? Well, a top voice, Fidelity, says millions of Americans are making the same crucial mistake when it comes to their 401ks. She will be here to explain what that is. And when you hear it, you'll understand why we're covering it here on Fast. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Fast Money. The value of the average retirement fund has risen thanks to the stock rally, but there's a problem. Americans just still aren't saving enough. Bob Pisani's pulling double duty again for us. The second night in a row, in fact, he's got all the details. Hey, Bob. Hello, Melissa. The good news is the value of retirement funds has risen as the market has risen. Good news. The bad news is the results are still pretty dismal. Fidelity recently reported that the average 401k was worth 104000 in the second quarter. That's up 6% from a year ago. That's a good number. The average IRA balance increased to 106900 also almost a 7% increase from 2017. But we're still not saving nearly enough for retirement. Now, at Vanguard, for example, the average 401k account value for an investor 65 years and older was $209,984. Now, this sounds like a good number, and it is a good number, but there's a problem. That number is pulled higher by a smaller number of super savers and high-income earners. The median balance, where half have more and half have less, that's what you want to look at. Among those 65 and older, look, it's a measy $64,811. Average that out over 20 years. So most Americans 65 would expect to live into their mid-80s. And that's not a lot of money to pull out on a yearly basis. $3,000, $4,000 a year, perhaps? Why are the savings so low? Well, a lot of participants don't contribute the full amount that they are allowed to contribute. In fact, this is even worse. Many don't participate at all. Only 72% of eligible employees are enrolled in their employer savings program. That's according to Vanguard. Given that most employees, employers try to match your contribution, that's like passing up on free money. Hey, by the way, if you're wondering uh, how many of these super savers are out there, Fidelity says roughly 157,000 people have saved at least $1 million in their 401ks. Back to you, Melissa. All right, Bob, thank you. Bob Bissani. So how can you become a 401k millionaire? Who better to ask than Jeannie Thompson, Senior Vice President of Workplace Investing at Fidelity. She's come with some tips and tricks so you can become a millionaire, too. And Jeannie, your first tip is... Um, Maybe it's surprising to some that people just don't own enough stocks. And Bob was alluding to that in terms of the lifespan of people. People are living into their 80s. Yeah, sometimes 90s. Yeah. Uh, most people underestimate their lifespan. And so you think about if you start working at age 25, you've got 40 years working and then potentially another 30 in retirement. And so if you, too conserv if you invest too conservatively in the beginning, you'll never make it. So I'm just curious. I know it's all individual, but let's say you can be in your in 50. Let's say you turn 50. What could your allocation be reasonably? Yeah. So around 50, the typical target date fund still uh -huh. has 85% in equities. Okay. And so well, you still have 15 to 17 years before you have to retire, and then potentially another 30 years in retirement. And so we really do recommend 
that you stay, you know, 90, 80, 90% equities all the way into your 50s. Wow. Yeah. You also say you have to know what your end goal is. Invest with purpose, you say. That's right. We do, we do say that. <laughs> because it's, it's really like running a marathon more than a sprint. And you have to know where you want to go. If you invest too conservatively, you won't get there. For example, over the last 10 years, when we look at 401k investors, 60% of the growth has come from the market. 40% from savings. People think about 401ks as a savings vehicle, but it's also a retire an investing vehicle to get you there. Yeah, and you also say you have to look at your allocations, what, like once a year? So what are you looking at? Are you looking at asset classes within your equity allocation? Yep, you're looking at asset classes. Uh -huh. I mean, you go to the doctor once a year for a checkup, you get your oil changed a couple times a year. So we recommend at least looking at your 401k once a year. As you get closer to retirement into your 50s and 60s, probably should be looking at it at least quarterly. Really? Yeah, especially with the market going so high, what happens is many people have equity drift. And so maybe they only want to say they want 75% equity, but with the market so high, they could be drifting. It's gone out of whack. Exactly, it's gone out of whack. So we encourage them to rebalance. You know, it's um, funny because you, know, you, you think about 401ks and retirement plans and you think this is money that you want to sock away. You don't want to look at it too often because if right. the stock market goes down, you could freak out right. and do something bad. I mean, there's there's a flip side to this too, isn't there? Yeah, there really is. And we saw that back in 08 and 09. Right. Um, I'm old enough to remember <laughs> that very well. And I would say that, you know, what's interesting within the 401k plan, we saw less than 1% of investors having that knee-jerk reaction and moving to cash. Most stayed the course. Okay. And it's great news because back in 08, when we look at people that have been in for 10 years, their balance was 73,000 back in 08, and now it's well over 200,000, approaching 300. Wow. So yeah, so it really reinforces that you gotta stay the course and not react too quickly to right. market volatility. But, but look at the course yes. often, yeah, okay? Yeah, you have <laughs> yeah, to know exactly. where you're going. Yeah. Yeah. All right, Jeannie, thank you. You're welcome. Jeannie thank Thompson you. of Fidelity. Well, shows like this makes their job extraordinarily difficult by definition. We're talking about trading every day, and obviously that's not something you want to do within the confines of your 401k. So although you should watch this show religiously, <laughs> you shouldn't put forth what we talk about in your retirement accounts. That's how I'll end that. Pretty good. That was, that was actually like quasi-intelligent. You know. <laughs> exactly. All right. Still Shocking. ahead. Electronic Arts po posting its worst day in a decade after delaying one of its key games. We'll tell you what that means for the company. Much more facts right after this. Time for Buzzkill. Electronic Arts sinking nearly 10%, posting its worst day in a decade after the video game maker announced a delay in the release of its latest Battlefield 5 shooter game, lowered its sales guidance for next year. The stock now trading at its lowest level since January. Is EA turning into a no-touch, Dan? I think for the midterm, it really is right now. It's had a technical breakdown, a massive breakdown, and then there's two fundamental breakdowns in the last month, two lower points of guidance. I think you see, need to see this thing consolidate a little bit here. I, I've been wrong on this one of late, and uh, I don't think you step in right here. So no touch. Uh, Guy, what do you say? It's a chance to trade back to Dan's point. I mean, it had a lot of technical difficulties now. It has a chance to trade down to that sort of October low. I think it was basically $100 on a screw, so I think you got to wait and see if it plays out that way. Okay. Get the final trades. That's next. It's time for the final trade. Dan Nathan. Yeah, so Mike's had the hot hand in Lulu here, but if you're coming into this thing new and you like the numbers, I would not be a buyer right here. I think you'd have an opportunity to buy a lower. David Seberg. Uh, PVH. I mean, it was a crowded, crowded name. They reported earnings in line and actually gave better guide, but it was down big today. I'm a buyer in weakness. 
Mike Coe. I don't think you sell Lulu. The reason it's trading at this high multiple is because it's got high growth, 20% top line, way better than that on the EPS side. I still like it. Mike versus Dan. How do you like that guy? Spy versus Who would spy you vote for? I can't choose, but I'll choose tomorrow on no way. You know, when I was a kid, there was a thing called one of these things is not like the other. See what's going on right here? <laughs> See what's going on? Look at that handsome number. He's big timing us. But you know what actually is big time as well? It's up there on the screen there, Mel. PayPal going higher. All right. I'm Melissa Lee. Thanks so much for watching. See you back here tomorrow at 5 for more fast. And then for options action. Meantime, don't go anywhere. Mad Money starts right now. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.